welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Supreme Court season is upon us. On Friday, the Supreme Court granted certiorari to Cordero Garcia v. Garland, discussed on episode 121 of the podcast. That's the very complicated circuit split, BIA versus circuit split, and even intra-Ninth Circuit battle over the proper scope of the aggravated felony definition at INA section 101A43S, an offense relating to obstruction of justice. Give episode 121 a re-listen if you're interested in that heady subject, or just wait until the Supreme Court hands me a 90-page read in a couple of months. To quote Richard Lewis, either way we're going to have a lot of fun. This week's cases, not as fun. Nothing particularly good for non-citizens, so I figured I'd kick us off with the BIA. Why not? Before getting to the cases, I wanted to talk a bit about Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would not otherwise qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services that families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fees or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and to get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. As Gen Z says, let's go. First is Matter of Chen, published by the BIA. This case is about the podcast's favorite deficient notices to appear and the stop time rule for non-LPR cancellation of removal. In the context of a motion to reopen, Ms. Chen is from China and attempted to enter the United States at a port of entry, 
by claiming to be a U.S. citizen. She was placed in removal proceedings with a notice to appear that did not have the date and time of her first hearing, that is, a deficient NTA. It did have the location, but that won't save it under INA Section 239A. An immigration judge ultimately denied her relief application. The decision doesn't say what kind, but it might have been asylum, and the BIA dismissed the appeal in 2005. Still in the United States, and presumably having built a life in this country, Ms. Chen filed a motion to reopen in 2021, based on the Supreme Court's and Chavez decision, arguing that she was now eligible to apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB. Presumably, she has U.S. citizen children, a U.S. citizen spouse, or maybe a U.S. citizen parent. Ms. Chen appears not to have had the 10 years continuous physical presence required to obtain that relief when she entered the U.S. in the early 2000s. She, of course, has the 10 years now, but service of an NTA stops the accrual of a continuous physical presence. That's INA Section 248-D1. But Pereira and Ms. Chavez hold that neither a deficient NTA nor notices of hearing after receiving a deficient NTA will stop the accrual of the 10 years. That's what all this Supreme Court fighting has been about. But what about final orders of removal? Well, the Ninth Circuit, Fifth Circuit, and Tenth Circuit have held that even they do not stop the accrual of continuous physical presence under the INA when proceedings are begun with a deficient NTA. After all, the stop time rule only mentions service of NTAs and certain criminal activity. Bit of strange bedfellows, those circuits. Telling. So, said Miss Chen, if that's true, her continuous physical presence never stopped, and now she is prima facie eligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal if the BIA would just reopen that final order of removal and remand so an IJ can decide whether she actually warrants the relief. And indeed, DHS did not argue that a final order of removal implicates the stop time rule. And the BIA did not so hold. Rather, the BIA followed the 9th, 5th, and 10th to hold that, quote, a final administrative order of removal does not trigger the stop time rule, end quote. Everywhere. Nationwide. I'll say it again. A final order of removal doesn't trigger the stop time rule. Tens if not hundreds of thousands of non-citizens in the U.S. with final orders of removal just became potentially eligible for non-LPR cancellation of removal, if only the IJ or BIA will reopen their case. But in the case of Ms. Chen, the BIA declined to do so. Because like almost all such motions, Ms. Chen's is untimely by many years. There exist arguments that might result in equitable tolling of the deadline, but they're hard to succeed on, and none were actually argued here, it appears. So we're in the never-great sua sponte reopening territory, essentially begging the BIA to reopen, with no circuit review should the BIA deny. If that weren't difficult enough, Matter of Coelho requires that non-citizens moving the BIA to reopen establish their prima facie eligibility for relief from removal. At a bare minimum, that's been interpreted to include submission of a completed application for the relief. 8 CFR section 1003.2 C1 requires that as well. In this case, the BIA held that continuous physical presence notwithstanding, quote, the respondent has not made a prima facie showing that her removal would cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to her U.S. citizen son or daughter, end quote. The BIA didn't see a prima facie showing on hardship. 
And to satisfy the hardship showing, Ms. Chen and her husband had submitted affidavits that their children don't speak the language in China and know nothing about the country. But to the BIA, these were simply the normal hardships expected of removal of non-citizen parents with their children, permitted and indeed encouraged by Congress when it changed the law in 1997. Not only that, in light of the use of a false passport nearly two decades ago, the BIA believes that Ms. Chen hadn't established a prima facie showing that she now warrants relief as a matter of discretion. The BIA wanted more positive factors to outweigh this negative one. This is of course required to succeed on relief on the merits, but also according to the BIA, it's going to be required to establish even a basic prima facie showing. Ms. Chen, therefore, will not get a chance to litigate her non-LPR cancellation of removal eligibility. Take note of what the BIA believes a prima facie showing is. But with this very last sentence of the decision. The BIA states that it, quote, need not reach whether Niz Chavez represented a fundamental change in law in July 2021 when the respondent filed her motion to reopen, end quote. That's an argument that likely refers to whether Ms. Chen warrants sua sponte reopening. Fundamental changes in law can do that. It also implicates whether the BIA should consider the motion timely so long as it was filed within a reasonable time of Niz Chavez, equitable tolling. According to the BIA, that question is alive and kicking under immigration law. I say, make it. And that is Matter of Chen. Next is USA v. Amatobia, published by the Ninth Circuit on January 11th, 2023. This case is about fraud and materiality in the criminal naturalization context. The rare podcast guest. And it is very long and complicated. It piqued my interest, so I dove in deep. Mr. Amantobia, who the Ninth Circuit refers to as Mr. Jari, so I will as well, is from Iraq. He is a Chaldean Christian, and he was born in 1990. Chaldean Christians have been persecuted in Iraq at times. By 2001, two of his older brothers lived in Germany already, and one had obtained refugee status and then citizenship there. Mr. Jerry's sister and then parents moved to Germany too. But they then moved to the U.S. in the mid-2000s. The sister became a U.S. citizen, and Mr. Jerry's parents became lawful permanent residents. The sister petitioned for Mr. Jerry to join them in the United States. But of course, the wait time for such a sibling petition was probably over a decade, even in the late 2000s. So Mr. Jerry went to Germany and requested asylum in that country in 2008. He received temporary residence while his application was pending. Later that year, he appeared for his German asylum interview, where he, quote, claimed that in Iraq, he had been threatened by a masked group he at first did not personally know, that he was subsequently threatened on multiple occasions by phone, and that the group sought to extort from him a payment of 30,000 U.S. dollars, end quote. Apparently, he didn't say anything about being physically harmed. His request for asylum in Germany was denied in August 2008. Germany denied his claim due to a quirk about German asylum law that I'll get into at the end of this case, but it still granted him refugee status, essentially because he was a Chaldean Christian in Iraq, and Iraq was horrifying in 2008 for just about everybody. 
This got Mr. Jarry a, quote, humanitarian residence permit that allowed him to be employed in Germany without restriction, as well as a travel document that was equivalent to a German passport, end quote. Those documents were valid for three years and could be extended. Learning more about German asylum law than I ever thought I would. But Mr. Jarry left Germany and in 2009 requested asylum at the San Ysidro port of entry on the Mexico-San Diego border. And here's where it gets problematic. He didn't mention Germany at his border interview. Rather, he said that, quote, on Christmas Day 2008, while he was on his way to church, Muslim terrorists beat him up and threatened to kill him. That same day, he said he fled to Mosul in northern Iraq and stayed there with his aunt. But when the Muslims started executing the Christians there too, he arranged to leave Iraq through the assistance of a smuggler, end quote. He had a whole big story about the smuggling that apparently wasn't true, and he said he hadn't traveled through any countries except Turkey, Spain, and Mexico. So I mean, not great. Flat out lying to get asylum, it appears, at the border. He added more details at his credible fear interview, including a stabbing. He was deemed credible and placed in removal proceedings. He repeated his story in removal proceedings and signed a Form I-589 under penalty of perjury with a variety of apparently false statements. He testified to it under oath. And although the IJ had, quote, some suspicion of whether Mr. Jari was really in Iraq during these critical events, end quote, DHS hadn't rebutted Mr. Jari's evidence and the IJ deemed him credible. The IJ granted asylum, Mr. Jari became an LPR in 2012, and eventually he applied to naturalize to U.S. citizenship. Both of those applications required, among other things, and in different ways, that he swear that he's never, quote, by fraud or willful misrepresentation of a material fact, ever sought to procure or procured a visa, other documentation, entry into the United States, or any immigration benefits, end quote. The U.S. government caught on, and in 2018, Mr. Jari was indicted for one, attempting to procure naturalization contrary to law in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1425A, and two, presenting an application for naturalization that contained materially false statements made under oath in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1546A. Mr. Jari was in deep, and he got convicted following a trial. Even his brother had to testify against him. He received a six-month imprisonment sentence. He appealed. And here we are. Remember, this is a criminal appeal in the Ninth Circuit. And the Ninth Circuit does not seem too pleased with Mr. Jari, if I'm reading the tea leaves of their tone. The Supreme Court last addressed Section 1425A and knowingly procuring or attempting to procure naturalization in its 2017 decision, Maslin Jack, United States. That case was actually a denaturalization case, and in it the Supreme Court held that it required that, quote, the government must establish that an illegal act by the defendant played some role in the acquisition of citizenship, end quote. Here, of course, we don't have acquisition of citizenship, but we have an attempt. So it's not quite on point. Not only that, importantly, in Maslogenic, the Supreme Court held that for a false statement to qualify, it must have, quote, sufficiently altered the process for investigating and adjudicating naturalization applications as to have influenced an award of citizenship, end quote. To the Supreme Court, as the Ninth Circuit reads it, this definition encompasses a materiality showing. And that's important because there are other provisions of the INA that have a materiality requirement, including, for example, false statements for an immigration benefit under INA Section 212A6CI. 
Again, comparing this to massalogenic, this is a bit different because it's an attempt criminal charge. The Ninth Circuit assumed without deciding that the parties, including the Department of Justice, were correct, and that attempt convictions also require a materiality showing. That is, just as was held in Maslogenic to be material, the false statement could have altered the process for investigating the naturalization application. Always seems like a fairly low and kind of malleable materiality standard to me. But I mean nothing. Getting back to this case, Mr. Jerry had to concede that his naturalization application answers were false. But he argued they weren't material. The Ninth Circuit here disagreed, just like the district judge and the jury before it. To the court under Maslin Jack, false statements are material if they, quote, would have mattered to an immigration official, end quote. Again, exceptionally broad and subjective standard. Quote, even if the true facts lying behind a false statement would not in and of themselves justify denial of citizenship, end quote, they can still be material if they, quote, could have led to the discovery of other facts which would do so, end quote. That last part of the definition does seem like one of the areas where Respondents' Council can provide value. When arguing against a materiality finding, show that even if taken to their logical conclusion, there would not have been a disqualifying issue discovered, false statement notwithstanding. Put another way, the false statement must be, quote, sufficiently relevant, end quote, to the naturalization application. Or to other immigration applications, if we're extending Maslin Jack, as USCIS likes to do. If so, then materiality is shown if, two, the follow-up investigation with the true statements known, quote, would have borne disqualifying fruit, end quote. Does not sound appetizing at all. I'm defining materiality multiple times in this decision because I find it confusing and I find it helpful to keep talking about it. If we're talking about the second element here, the fruit element, the Ninth Circuit made it even easier to satisfy by reading the Supreme Court's prior precedent in this way, quote, the government need only establish that the investigation would predictably have disclosed some legal disqualification, end quote. Sounds like a standard to me, although kind of a low one. With all of this framing in mind, the Ninth Circuit believed that Mr. Jari's lies were material. He swore in the application that he'd never provided false or misleading statements to immigration officials to gain admission or immigration benefits, but he had. And a naturalization officer would have investigated that, that is, if he admitted that he had provided false statements in the past. That's not very crazy. But would it have predictably disclosed a disqualifying fact on naturalization? Mr. Jari argued that he was eligible for asylum at the beginning nonetheless, so none of this really matters. The Ninth Circuit avoided this argument and, in a dagger through my heart, held that his misstatements during the adjustment of status process shows that he was never, quote, lawfully admitted for permanent residence, end quote, as is required to naturalize. Restated, and we're getting quite complicated on many fronts here, the Ninth Circuit appears to implicitly affirm USCIS's view that the naturalization statute requires more that a non-citizen simply receive LPR status as all or nearly all naturalization applicants always have. To the court, INA Section 101A20 requires that the LPR status have been properly granted, and if it's not, naturalization can be denied, presumably indefinitely, notwithstanding the fact that USCIS has given the non-citizen a green card and decided in the past that he or she warranted that green card. Dagger. 
we're essentially talking having to prove all over again at a naturalization interview that LPR status was properly granted the first time around. Many of us know that this happens at naturalization interviews all the time in practice, notwithstanding the fact that USCIS only has five years to revoke LPR status under the law. The Ninth Circuit said that because of all of this, Mr. Jari wasn't even admissible when he adjusted to LPR status. Throwing the book at him, finding that his merely having sought asylum and LPR status by fraud or willful misrepresentation of a material fact was, quote, sufficient to render him ineligible for lawful permanent residence and therefore naturalization, end quote. Make it stop. There was more. The credibility finding, etc. Lots of ways to show that the lies and misstatements about persecution and the other asylum elements were material to asylum proceedings. I must concede. Mr. Jai argued that his credibility and his past experiences notwithstanding, there was a pattern or practice of persecution against Chaldean Christians in Iraq at the time, and so he would have won asylum anyway. None of this matters, he kept arguing. But the jury didn't agree in his case and the Ninth Circuit wasn't going to overturn the jury. The separate 18 U.S.C. section 1546A finding was actually even easier for the court to sustain, as according to the Ninth Circuit, the jury instruction used actually had a more demanding materiality standard than does section 1425A, which the jury and now the Ninth Circuit have both sustained. So Mr. Jari remains convicted in a tough one for non-citizens, false claims, and materiality. I feel compelled to say, for those that don't know, that there are many meritorious Iraqi Chaldean Christian asylum claims. This is just not one of them, apparently. I know that was a lot, but here's one more interesting thing. Seems like Germany denied Mr. Jari's asylum application because, at least at the time it denied, quote, under the German Asylum Procedure Act, asylum is unavailable to anyone who enters from a safe third country. Given that Mr. Jari conceitedly had entered Germany by land, and given that all countries bordering Germany were considered safe third countries, he was necessarily ineligible for asylum. End quote. Who knew? And that is USA v. Amentobia. Okay. Reyes Ramos v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on January 13th, 2023. This case is about reasonable fear interviews and particular social groups. Mr. Reyes is from El Salvador and has entered the United States without inspection three times. He's had removal orders reinstated and has, on at least one occasion, withdrawn a request for a reasonable fear interview. But after his last re-entry without authorization, and after DHS learned about him and reinstated his prior removal order, he very much expressed a fear of return to El Salvador, and he stuck with it. He claimed a fear of MS-13, going back to when they tried to recruit him at 18 or 19 years old. When he refused, they beat him unconscious, leaving scars on his head. He's been shot in the leg by gang members and threatened with death. They've told his mom that they're going to kill him, and he suffered his cousin's kidnapping and murder, as well as his uncle's murder. He didn't report his experiences to police, based on a belief that police could not protect him from gang violence in El Salvador. An asylum officer believed Mr. Reyes' story. But the officer didn't think that such a fear or experience gets a person relief or protection in the United States. 
the officer found that Mr. Reyes did not have a reasonable fear of persecution or torture. Couldn't get asylum anyway because of the reinstated removal order, but a reasonable fear finding would have allowed him to seek withholding of removal or protection under the Convention Against Torture before an immigration judge. But Mr. Reyes was not permitted this opportunity. His only avenue now is to get a review of the no reasonable fear finding by an immigration judge. And IJ did review it, and the IJ reaffirmed, holding that Mr. Reyes didn't even potentially have a claim to relief or protection. While the IJ appeared very sympathetic to Mr. Reyes's plight, to the IJ it, quote, appeared to be motivated by gangs or organized crime committing heinous crimes to increase their ranks and power, instead of targeting the respondent on any protected ground, end quote. No nexus. Also, the immigration judge didn't find the asserted particular social group of, quote, persons against whom the MS gang retaliates for failure to join, end quote, cognizable under immigration law. As such, the IJ affirmed the no reasonable fear finding, permitting DHS to execute the reinstated removal order and send Mr. Reyes back to El Salvador without any removal proceedings of any kind. Because again, he already had a final order of removal that was being reinstated for many years past. To the extent that review of no reasonable fear findings is permitted in the circuits, it skips the BIA and goes to the circuit directly. Will the First Circuit agree that it has jurisdiction to review an IJ's no reasonable fear finding? It will. Not. Kind of. The First Circuit punted again on an immigration jurisdiction question, quote, as it has done in other immigration cases that raised issues of our authority to review, end quote. This despite oil conceding jurisdiction. Remember that. Had the First Circuit so ruled in favor of jurisdiction, the holding would appear to conflict, at least in part, with the very harsh Second Circuit decision Bhaktabai Patel v. Garland on episode 105, but would align with decisions in other circuits, including but surely not limited to the Fourth and the Ninth Circuit. Can't get a gong because the First didn't rule. So anyway, the First skipped jurisdiction because it held that Mr. Reyes couldn't win on the merits anyway. The First Circuit believed that the IJ thoughtfully and fully considered the record before denying Mr. Reyes's arguments. And as a matter of law, the First agreed that Mr. Reyes's particular social group was not recognizable. To be a valid particular social group, the group must be immutable, defined with particularity, and be socially distinct. To the First Circuit, even if MS-13 members are themselves visible and distinct in El Salvador, persons against whom the gang retaliates for failure to join are not themselves distinctly known in El Salvador, as required by the immigration law asylum standards. Or at least there was an insufficient showing here. Recall at the reasonable fear interview level. The First Circuit also didn't believe that the group was defined with particularity. To the court, the group was ambiguous, quote, leaving open, for example, what conduct counted as retaliation and what level of refusal constituted sufficient resistance to provoke retaliation from gang members, end quote. Without a particular social group, withholding of removal is out. No nexus to a protected ground is required for cat protection, but I guess Mr. Reyes didn't challenge the no reasonable fear of torture finding here? I don't know. Unaddressed by the court, though meaning his final order of removal from many years ago gets reinstated, and that Mr. Reyes will be removed to El Salvador. And that is Reyes Ramos v. Garland. 
That leaves us with USA v. Harrison, published by the 11th Circuit on January 10th, 2023. Thought I'd do a sentence enhancement case because I'm a masochist. To summarize, Mr. Harrison's conviction in federal court gets enhanced by a lot of years if his 1997 conviction for robbery by intimidation under Georgia law, OCGA section 16-8-40, is a crime of violence. Because both the definition and definitely the analysis for crimes of violence for sentence enhancement is the same in immigration law, this case is important. And Mr. Harrison is a United States citizen, by the way. Lest you get the feeling from this immigration podcast that the only individuals who ever commit crimes in this country are non-citizens. OCGA section 16-8-40 criminalizes robbery by force, by intimidation, and by, quote, sudden snatching, end quote. How descriptive. Each of those things is listed in the statute under its own numbered subsection. A sentence enhancement and immigration crime of violence, in turn, require that to qualify, the crime must have as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person of another. Sentence enhancement also has another definition not applicable to immigration law. And get this for all you Georgia crimmigration attorneys. The Department of Justice agreed in this case that Georgia robbery by sudden snatching is not a crime of violence. Doesn't matter how sudden the snatch or how snatchful the sudden, a crime of violence will not match whether one or a dozen. If Dr. Seuss was an immigration lawyer, everyone, I'll be here all night. That means that the Georgia crime is not categorically a crime of violence. It can be committed in a nonviolent way, sudden snatching. And that means that Mr. Harrison wins unless, dun dun dun, the statute is divisible into three separate crimes and sudden snatching is just one of them. And then the court can look to see whether Mr. Harrison did not, in fact, get convicted of a snatchful sudden. Unfortunately for Mr. Harrison, that's what the 11th Circuit decided here. This is a modified categorical approach case. Quote, a divisible statute lists multiple alternative elements and so effectively creates several different crimes. End quote. The 11th Circuit first believed this the case by looking at the text of the criminal statute itself. As I mentioned, the text lists three ways of committing the crime in separate, different numbered paragraphs. Indicative of divisibility, that is, indicative that sudden snatching, is a separate crime under the statute. To the 11th Circuit, the separate listed paragraphs are not simply, quote, a list of illustrative examples, which would be a non-exhaustive list, making them alternative means, end quote. That would make the statute non-divisible, as it would simply describe one crime in a variety of different ways. Continuing on with the statutory text, the 11th Circuit noted that those separate paragraphs are separated by using the word or. According to the 11th Circuit, that actually doesn't really help, because that could signify elements or means. Remember that one. I believe there is some different interpretation out there of the use of the word or for modified categorical approach purposes. Anyway, the 11th Circuit is leaning towards divisibility based on the statutory text, but it needs more. So how are the crimes punished? Courts and the BIA have used that analysis heavily in recent months to determine divisibility. If the different sections are punished in different ways, the circuits, and especially the BIA, have held that the statute is divisible. 
And wouldn't you know it, all ways of committing Georgia robbery carry with them the same punishment. Based on some cases I've read recently, that would seem to be determinative, an open and shut case on divisibility in favor of non-divisibility and Mr. Harrison. Not so, said the 11th Circuit, still unsure. So it compared the Georgia statute to other Georgia statutes. Georgia armed robbery in particular, which makes clear that robbery by intimidation is a lesser included offense of Georgia armed robbery. A Georgia criminal appellate case actually holds similarly for sudden snatching. That is, that it is a lesser-included offense of armed robbery. To the 11th Circuit, that indicates separateness and divisibility, albeit in a different context. To the Georgia case law, then. As the 11th Circuit reads Georgia case law, Georgia has separate definitions for each of the three types of robbery. Not so surprising. So what about jury instructions? Well, to the 11th Circuit, the court believed that the pattern jury instructions indicate that depending on the type of underlying robbery, the jury instructions must be tailored to fit that specific type. To the 11th Circuit, that further indicated divisibility, and altogether, the 11th Circuit was satisfied that the three different ways of committing this crime were elements rather than means, meaning that the statute was divisible. As it was divisible, the 11th Circuit could fully apply the modified categorical approach and determine that Mr. Harrison committed his robbery by intimidation. Is that a crime of violence? It is. Georgia case law defines the intimidation required as, quote, terror likely to create an apprehension of danger and induce a person to part with his property for the safety of his person, end quote. That matched the definition of a crime of violence for sentence enhancement purposes. But to be very clear, immigration listeners, that crime of violence definition is actually one that's only used in the sentence enhancement context. The 11th Circuit in its final footnote expressly notes that it is not adjudicating whether the Georgia statute meets the crime of violence elements clause, which is the same definition used for immigration aggravated felony purposes. Put another way, to the extent that immigration attorneys should be interested in anything I just said about this Georgia crime, It's really about the divisibility of the statute stuff, and the holding about sudden snatching, should such a case ever cross your desk. This case does not stand for the proposition that Georgia robbery is an immigration crime of violence. Got it? And it's actually even more tricky than I just discussed, if you'll indulge me before we conclude. See, Mr. Harrison's robbery conviction occurred in 1997, like I said. Prior to 2007, the Georgia jury instructions appeared to permit a conviction without a jury needing to decide which of the three things the robber did. The Fourth Circuit has expressly held that this made the Georgia robbery crime not divisible. That's United States v. Fluker from 2018. The Eleventh Circuit is disagreeing with the Fourth Circuit and Fluker. Now, this whole dispute is moot post-2007 because apparently Georgia then changed the jury instructions. But for pre-2007 Georgia robbery, there is a circuit split on divisibility. Good enough for me. And that is USA v. Harrison. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. 
I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.